Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. So episode one, clearly we've never done this before, but it's, it's exciting to have this platform. And I know I came to you and kind of pitched the idea and a little bit of hesitation, but I think you've jumped on board now. So I'm pretty excited about this. And uh, so for the listeners out there, probably at least, there's probably at least 100,000 by now. Um, what the goal here for starting a podcast, for, for me anyways, is I wanted a platform to be able to relay a positive message throughout the oil and gas industry. There's, there's too much, in my opinion, anytime you hear about it from, like, whether it's media, news, you hear it from friends and family, right away there's a negative connotation towards it. And I think in an industry like ours, because we're in drilling, a lot of times there's not enough positive messages out there and enough information out there to the general public that can get on to a platform like iTunes that's completely unbiased, is what, what you search for, and allow people to hear stories throughout the oil and gas industry, primarily for drilling, uh, and help educate people that may not necessarily have a good understanding from a technological standpoint as to what we actually do. Because I think that's the biggest misunderstanding mis, um, is, is what do we actually do? And so, Matt, what are your kind of thoughts? I mean, what, what would you want to relay through doing the podcast? I mean, much of the same. I think, you know, the oil field is full of so many interesting stories. And it could be from just how a company started out. It can be from individuals and and just things they learned or new ideas they had that revolutionized uh, how we do things. Uh, It's just a really fascinating area where there's just so much opportunity to do things new and different. And yet at the same time, we fight a lot of the same challenges. So sharing what we've learned, but also talking about what we're trying to learn. um, I, I think there's just a lot there for somebody who has no idea what goes on all the way to people who are really wrestling with these issues. Right. So you mentioned challenges. So like throughout your career, what type of challenges have you seen uh, touching on just people that are, are either uneducated or uninformed? I mean, what can you describe some of those challenges that you've seen personally? I think, it, well, what's fascinating is I think it's kind of a two-part answer. The first one is the stuff we keep having to relearn. Um, and those are typical challenges where we get we head far down one road and forget the fundamentals and start over. And you see that through either the cyclical nature of the industry where there's a lot of layoffs and transition and then people come back to work and uh, we have the same issue over again and we have to revisit how to do it. But the other part of it is doing those practices in more challenging environments. Uh, You look at the nature of the business going from deep water being the hot place, right? And we're taking 180 days to drill a $100 million well, and then jumping to unconventionals where every minute is still important, but it's because I'm trying to drill 10 wells or 20 wells in the same period of time. And so I think that's 
that's something that really fascinates me. And then also just to step away and look at, I'm trying to hit a target that's three miles away from where I am right now, that's 10,000 feet under the ground. Um, you know, what does that look like? And it's gone from being a really, really big deal and the box being really, really huge to now getting smaller and smaller. And if you can't do that for a customer, you're out. If you can't do that as an operator, you're a failure. Uh, right. Whereas before it was these cutting edge things. And so a lot of it is deeper, further, farther, what, what have you. Um, but trying to adapt all of these things and recognizing there's new technologies to, to do it. Justin, you're obviously not from around here in these American parts. How could you tell, eh? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, as much as we love giving you Canadians a good ribbing, um, <laughs> you know, uh, you're from British Columbia, correct? Yes, sir. So uh, grew up in Vernon, British Columbia, which is also known as Lake Country, also known as the Okanagan. Sounds fascinating. I hear it's beautiful out there. It is. It really, it, it, living in Houston now, it's kind of funny because growing up in a place like that, you don't realize uh, all the things you have at your fingertips, whether it's, you know, mountains, lakes, uh, hunting, fishing, snowmobiling. I mean, everything outdoors you could think of, I was surrounded uh, with growing up and uh, I truly miss it. But I'm, I'm extremely happy to be here in Houston. Don't get me wrong. Yes, well... We're glad you're here in the Bayou City. <laughs> Thank you. I feel welcome. <laughs> well, there's obviously a story that brought you here. Somehow you ended up in the oil and gas industry from that land of lakes. What, what got you started in the oil and gas industry? That's a good question, Matt. Uh, British Columbia really isn't known for its oil and gas. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot, it's it mainly focuses on forestry. Uh, and you've got Vancouver, obviously, which has nothing to do with oil and gas. Uh, they consume a lot of it. But uh, I was in high school and had no idea what I wanted to do after high school. And my cousin came to uh, – he was from Calgary. He came to visit us during the holidays. And he he really had some fascinating stories about these trips and things that he was doing with customers and uh, all I knew that he was in oil and gas as a salesman. And I thought it was pretty fascinating how he could make a ton of money and all he did was entertain people. And so, of course, I asked him how I could get a job. And it, uh, he, he led me down an interesting path. <laughs> so you tell him, hey, that really sounds great, whatever you're doing. How do I get there? I imagine that's part of the conversation. But what happens next? So he proceeded to tell me about how getting in his position, I think he was in his late 30s at that time, uh, he didn't just land in that role. Um, he spent a significant amount of time in the field uh, on workover rigs in Alberta. And so he said, you know, you want to get into oil and gas, do you? I said, absolutely. He said, well, there's a training course that I think you should take once you're done high school. I said, okay, no problem. What is it? And it, uh, at the time, it was a program put on by PITS, which is Petroleum Industry Training Center, and that was based out in Nisku, Alberta. And it was basically a two-week roughneck course. And uh, so I applied uh, with my, one of my best friends, actually, who's still in the oil and gas industry today as well. 
And we both took this course and learned all about roughnecking. And uh, on a drilling rig, that's you're basically the low man on the totem pole. So it was a great uh, transition from not having any idea what a drilling rig was to at least understanding the fundamentals on what it is to drill a well, all the tools and the terminology on a drilling rig. So after high school, I did that. Okay, so you take this course and you get a job. And what's it like being a roughneck on a rig? Yeah, so you're exactly right. It was uh, got a job with one of the, a bigger drilling contractor in Alberta, and uh, with my tiny little pickup truck that was probably worth about two grand at the time, headed out to Drayton Valley, which is where the first well that I was involved with. That's where it was, and um, it was a crazy experience. I grew up in high school, uh, and you know, I'll be transparent. All I cared about in high school was partying and girls and, and really just the social aspect. And I'm a little, I'm a city boy who likes to have a good time and be around my friends. And, uh, it was almost like a rite of passage, uh, for me to be a man because going out to that location on August 18th, 2004, uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. I showed up, I had no idea what it was. There was a bunch of machinery, a bunch of iron, uh, with, a flat piece of land that had you could tell had been you know excavated out, and I just had no idea. I was lost. I had no idea what I was doing. I felt so useless asking anything I needed to do out there. Like I just had no idea. When you get sent to a rig, and nowadays it may be different, but back then they just threw you on a rig and they expected you to know how to work. And um, so, of course, the first question someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, what's your name?" and like, I'm Justin, I'm supposed to be here. Uh, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. And they're like, oh, do you have any rig experience? Oh, I said, yeah, yeah, I have a two-week uh, at Pitts. I did the Roughneck course. And they say, well, you can basically take that certificate and, and wipe it with you-know-what. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, I realized nobody knows me out here. My reputation back home doing what I did in high school, whether you know whether with my sports career during high school or – how many friends I had and, and the cool factor, none of that mattered. If you could, you know, if you could hit things with a hammer, turn a wrench and bust your butt for 12 hours a day, that's how you gained respect. So it, it was a very interesting transition from a personal standpoint. So, uh, yeah, I, I started off there as a roughneck and for about three years, uh, worked my way up to a motorman position. Okay, so you're climbing up the ranks in the <laughs> oil and gas industry, at least on, on your one part of the world on a drilling rig. <laughs> yeah, I um, felt like I was on top of the world for sure. <laughs> well, uh, part of your ascent uh, clearly continued from being a roughneck uh, to where you are today. So, so what happened? How did you transition out of roughneck and where did you go from there? Well, like I said, growing up, I really didn't have any aspirations to be in the middle of nowhere for six months of the year. Um, I knew I'd want to get back to the city. And so we were working for a large oil and gas company, or I say working, we we're drilling for a large oil and gas company in Canada. And I talked to the company man on a rig one day and I said, hey, you know, what would it take for me to get into your shoes? And, uh, you know, I wanted to go right from roughneck to company man. And I just, I was always about trying to, to advance as fast as possible and do as little amount of work as I can. And uh, he said, well, he said, if I could do it all over again, I'd go back to school. So I thought, you know what? That's a heck of an idea. 
it was a bit of a sacrifice, obviously, making good money to going and living on credit. But uh, I decided to do it. And I had full support from my parents. They thought it was a great idea. And uh, yeah, decided to go to move to Calgary. Because uh, during the time I was working on rigs, I was traveling from Alberta to, to BC on my days off. I uh, decided to move to Calgary and did uh, petroleum engineering technology at a small tech college there, uh, downtown Calgary, known as SAIT. Right on. Mm-hmm. So you get you some book learning. And what happens next? You, you're, you're an educated man. What, what happens? <laughs> well, it was interesting, right? I had that rig experience. I had this petroleum engineering technology degree. I figured I'd come out of college making 100 grand a year and, you know, life would be great at that point. Well, it was 2000, it was 2008 going into 2009 and 2009 when I graduated and uh, there were just no jobs to be had. Um, it was it was somewhat of a downturn at that time. And uh, I had a friend, well, my stepbrother, he had a furniture company and he hired uh, a guy who had a furniture moving company. So I ended up hiring on with them. The company was called Store to Door. <laughs> and unfortunately for me, uh, I ended up having to get hired on with them uh, moving furniture instead of getting into oil and gas. And at that time, I really questioned what I was doing. Of course, you know, I spent time on the rig, got this education, and here I am driving around Calgary, delivering furniture. And I just, you know, at that point thought, you know, what the heck did I just do? And I really questioned everything, you know, every decision I made and thought about moving back to British Columbia and even trying to get back on drilling rigs. But at the time there was, you know, the drilling activity in Canada had was slowed down significantly. So I kind of, you know, I just, I figured is, you know, if I just continue to work hard and network and try and get my name out there, I said, you know, it's something's bound to happen. And one day I remember driving, uh, you know, on my way to a a delivery and I got a phone call from a fellow student and uh, he calls me and he says, hey, man, what are you doing? You know, and I was never proud to say it. I kind of, well, Chad, you know, I'm delivering furniture, man. I haven't found a job yet. And uh, he said, what's your lucky day? He's like, you know, Tom and Ken. They're looking for someone exactly like yourself with some rig experience and education to come work at CES. And I, was, I thought, of, I will go there today and hand deliver a resume. And so he said, well, you know, send me a resume and I'll forward it to them. And fortunately enough, the next day I got an interview with them and they asked me when I could start. And of course, I was ready to start right then and there. And I said, I can start tomorrow morning. And they said, well, you know, give us a little bit of time. We could probably get you started next Monday. And uh, so, yeah. I ended up in 2009 getting hired on uh, with them and, uh, yeah, started off as a, as a well data technician for uh, Canadian Energy Service. Okay, so you hire on with Canadian Energy Services, which is now CES Energy Solutions, the parent company of AES Drilling Fluids. Yes. And um, you're working, you're learning, that's exciting. I mean, what what happens next? Somehow you ended up in the United States. Right. So when I got hired on, they asked me what my goals were. And I and I had to be blatantly honest. I said, well, I want to be sitting in your shoes one day, Tom. And uh, he kind of laughed. And he said, well, you know, work hard. I mean, you, you never know what the possibilities are. And uh, I said, no, to be honest, I said, I don't know if CES has any work overseas. I said, I, I, I want to work overseas or in the U.S. I've always aspired to get to work in a different country than Canada. And I just think there's so much out in the world to 
you, you know, there's just so much offered out there. I said, I'd love to work in the U.S. So after about a year working downtown Calgary, uh, Ken Zinger at the time came into my office and says, hey, you still want to go work in the United States? And I said, absolutely, Ken. Went, you know, I'll pack my bags today. And so he said, okay, well, let's go in September and we'll fly down to Pennsylvania and you can meet all the guys and see if it's a good fit. And fortunately enough, they took me with open arms and welcomed me. And I started working down in the U.S. in 2010 uh, in Pennsylvania. And yeah, from there kind of bounced around, uh, worked down in uh, South Louisiana and worked in South Texas, known as uh, an area called the Eagleford. And uh, since 2010, like I said, bounced around. I, I had the opportunity to work in Denver for a year, downtown Denver. Um, and yeah, it was, it was really exciting. And uh, I'm extremely happy to be here now in Houston. And, you know, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. It's funny because growing up, I always told my friends that I, I was going to live in the U.S. and work in the U.S. And uh, it's a lot of my friends even now, they, they compliment me and say, man, you know, you, you set yourself a goal and you actually did it. It's, it's fascinating because you always told us even in elementary school that you were going to live in the United States. And so yeah, it's kind of a funny path. But I guess if you put your mind to something – and you really just focus on the end goal um, and work towards it, anything's possible. So the dream lives on. What do I'd you like to say, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I always like to say I'm a Canadian living the American dream. So it is possible. <laughs> you hear that, Canadians? <laughs> so, Matt, I know you've lived here for a long time, but where are you originally from? So I'm actually originally from Ohio. I was born in Columbus. Both my parents went to Ohio State and met after college. So my whole family's kind of rooted in Ohio. But uh, pretty much since I was about four or five years old, I've been tied to the Houston area in one way or another. So Ohio, are you an Ohio State fan? Uh, it suits me well to desire that they win because... <laughs> My dad gets so upset when they lose that it, it's just easier for me. Okay. So what, is your dad a big football fan then? or He's a big football fan. He's a big Ohio State everything fan. My parents go back every year for a game. Very um, cool. Yeah. So normally when something doesn't go well for them, he calls me the next day and gives complains about things that I probably didn't watch the game and I have to hear a very convoluted description of what happened and it's just easier to hope they win. <laughs> I understand. So you said then you moved to from Ohio to Texas. What brought you into Texas? Well, oil and gas, of course. Uh, my dad was in the oil and gas industry, is now retired. Uh, he started out in drill bits and kind of got into directional. So we lived in Ohio, then moved to Utah, then Colorado, and then made our way to Singapore, and then from Singapore to Houston. Okay, so there you had a, a few stops in between, obviously. Yes. Interesting, interesting. So tell us what it was like having parents, well, your dad being in oil and gas. It sounds like you traveled a lot. Well, we got to travel a lot, uh, especially when we lived overseas. You know, got to go to Thailand and ride an elephant and do all those fun things that when you're a kid or you, you don't appreciate as much as you do until you're older. Um, and then, of course, my dad was going to all these places where – you know, we'd look it up on the map, and I thought it was kind of normal that people would go to Eastern Europe 
in the mid eighties before communism fell (laughs) (laughs) kind of like it becomes more and more real as you, as you think about it, that he was going to these crazy places uh, on business that hardly anybody ever traveled to. Right. And that's the one, you know, several reasons that oil and gas are extremely interesting, but uh, certainly having the ability uh, to travel on company expenses and live in different areas, that must've been really exciting. And so, Growing up and, and moving and seeing your dad doing what he did, was that something that you aspired to, to an industry that you really wanted to follow his path in? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, I don't think it was the travel or the, the international things that, that bothered me. I think it was, you know, the oil field went through a lot of tough years, especially when I was old enough to know like, hey, kids, uh, dad's company got bought. He doesn't know if he's going to have a job tomorrow. Um you know, mergers, layoffs, acquisitions. And, you know, if it, if it wasn't something happening to my dad, it would be something happening to his colleagues where it was just, wow. I mean, this is, seems like an exciting business, but I, it also sounds like a, just a really tough place to try and get by. Right. Uh, so I sort of swore I would never get involved with it. Okay. So tell us about, you know, high school. And then you obviously from high school, uh, went into college, university. Tell us, you know, what kind of path you led going into uh, getting into your career. So I think, I mean, when I was in high school, I was very much one of the the geeks. I built computers. I try dabbled in electronics and robotics, and I was going to go into the tech industry and turn the world upside down. That was that was my my grand scheme, and. Uh, so I went to the University of Texas pursuing a degree in electrical engineering. And I quickly realized that as smart as you think you are, there's a lot of people that are smarter than you. Um, right. And a lot of them really screwed up the curve in all my engineering classes. <laughs> so it was really humbling. And it was also one of those things that, that really wore me out. Uh, I think not only... I did well in school up until that point. My identity was sort of in doing well in school and then kind of struggling. And I think the other part of it was just, uh, I think on the social aspect of things, it was just, I didn't have friends that I hung out with that I I studied with. It was, I found friends from church and I found friends from other organizations, but I realized like, wow, professionally, I just don't run with this crowd. Uh, And so I, I just... I started to have my doubts. And then certainly when I started looking for a job, it was one of those where um, I, really didn't, I really didn't know what direction to take. I still thought maybe there was a chance and once I got working, it would be better. Uh, but I just didn't know. Okay. So it was electrical engineering? Correct. So, and at that point, in what year was it that you graduated? 2005. 2005. Okay. So how did you go from from electrical engineering, sort of the tech world, and and trying to be the next Elon Musk? I mean, or at the time, I guess he wasn't even really existing. But going from from that world uh, and making a decision to get into oil and gas, describe that transition. I kind of summarize it when most people ask that as they were hiring. Um, (laughs) Makes sense. 2005, you know, the price of oil was high. Uh, the industry was struggling from, you know, really reeling from the effects of, of losing so many people over time during the downturn. And, and lots of folks who survived the 85 downturn um, really retiring and moving on. And, and there was this desperate need for people. 
And so they said, look, we're going to, we're going to try and accelerate your training and develop you. And so this, and so the job I ended up taking was basically this rapid development program where they would send you overseas for six weeks and then you get two weeks off and then you go do it again for three years. And that sounded really interesting and exciting, particularly relative to what few other opportunities were out there in the, in the tech industry. Of course. So how long did you spend traveling and working overseas? Well, so for the first part of my career, some of it was in the U.S. and some of it was overseas, but it was that kind of three-year time period. Okay. Um, there was kind of an overlap where I spent about 10 months in Indonesia um, and, and really loved that. And then it was kind of, I, I, I really wanted to feel settled. So I moved to Azerbaijan, which <laughs> sounds a little counterintuitive. Uh, I've learned that, uh, that probably, I mean, it was, it was a good move from a career perspective and just an opportunity to learn, right. but the idea of not living out of a suitcase was settled to me. Um, you know, before that on my rotations, it would be, I would get a call and they'd say, Hey, uh, you need to go to Indonesia. We need you there. So like get a plane ticket. You don't have a visa, but what you're going to do is fly to Singapore, give someone your, your passport, they'll get you a visa and then later that night, you can fly to Jakarta and you'll be in Indonesia um, and like pack your bags and go. So it was always very short notice. I didn't know exactly where I was going. Uh, and so that transient lifestyle had worn me out. So the idea of like, man, I have an apartment, like sign me up. Yeah. That, and I don't think most people can, can fathom the fact being on call or getting a last minute phone call to pack your bags and go to a completely unfamiliar territory uh, it really takes a certain mindset to be able to do that and realize sort of the, you know, that all that eventually is going to be worth it and really keeping your mind and emotions controlled to realize that that's doing that sets you apart from a lot of people. And I think that's part of the reason why you've done so well in your career. Um, so doing the, you know, traveling, working, working for a major service company, uh, how did you end up getting back into Houston and in you know full time and, and transitioning into working for uh, our company here with AES? So there's a, a few few parts that happened along the way, but uh, so in Baku originally I was going to be in Azerbaijan for well they said six months or longer. Um, so after six months I was told how badly it would be for me to consider going back to the U.S. at that point and what a great idea it would be for me to stay. And yeah. it's nice to be wanted, but uh, and I kind of suspected that's what was going to happen. And I sort of said, look, I can do two years here, but this is, it, it was a challenging place to, to live. It can be kind of lonely. Um, it, it was, there's not as much to do but work. Uh, and so it was, it was a pretty intense place. And, and it, I think it built up more and more kind of the cumulative transient lifestyle outside of my comfort zone saying like, I really want to move back to something familiar. And Houston was the most obvious place uh, where you might be able to say, I want to move back to the U.S., but uh, most of the time that means Houston. Um, okay. And I have family here and it's familiar, right? So it, 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 I really kind of built up Houston as this, this homecoming for me. Very nice. And what year was it that you kind of moved back full time into Houston? I moved back in 2010 uh, and I joined a, a group that we did business development, but it was so specific. You had to do a lot of reservoir characterization and very specific things with chemical interaction and formations that 
Uh, it was still very technical and very detailed, but you basically had to educate somebody on why something was valuable okay. before you could sell it. So you talk about reservoir. So briefly describe what areas within oil and gas, or more specifically, you know, upstream, downstream, did you get over that you know, over that span of time being with that large corporation, you know, before we transition to how you are today. But I'm interested to hear just a little bit about what experience you had uh, during that time. Well, I think kind of the the interesting thing was you, you, you were sort of the, the, the whole idea of the training program was we're going to train you up, but you kind of have to prove yourself. So there were these elements of, of training and experience where they'd say, okay, go work on, go rig up centrifuges, go repair them. Um, and centrifuges are these pieces of equipment that are big and heavy and, you know, you get to turn a big wrench, uh, and unpack a bunch of dirt from the equipment. Um, it was, it was pretty hard work, but you learned kind of the mechanical aspects of some rig equipment. And then, uh, I would start working on different fluid systems, sometimes new fluid systems and sometimes trying to choose the right one to help. A customer and flu- fluids meaning what type of fluids? Drilling fluids. Drilling fluids. Okay. Um, and the the drilling fluids were mostly at least it started out as kind of your conventional mud as we call it that you see every day, but gradually built up into some more custom specialized systems that you would use to drill the reservoir interval or the interval where you produce the oil and gas out of. Um, and because of the sensitivity of hey, I drilled this really expensive well. I want to make sure it produces. People really wanted to pay for extra insurance to make sure that things would perform. And so you you learned a lot more about what customers wanted and you learned a lot more about specifically the type of rock they were drilling into and the type of risks associated with, with drilling into that rock. Okay. Working for a large company, would you say the ability to train and have those sort of developmental or career paths, uh, do you think that was a huge benefit in, for you from a personal standpoint and growth? I think for me personally, yes. I, I don't think it's universally true. I, I mean, sometimes you you know, there's there's formal special training. You can sit through a week long class and really get educated, but there's a lot of things you just have to see, and so it's that combination of sort of being thrown to the wolves and then taking a class and realizing, oh, that's what I was doing, or right. the other way around where it's like, okay. You learned about this. Let's go try it. Um, so I, I think you know, big the big companies offer those kinds of resources of a bit a bit of structure. Uh, but sometimes the assumption is because you took a class, you you must be ready to go. Right. Okay. Very well. So you're back in Houston. Uh, you're happy to be home. You got your family. Sounds like things were going great. So why leave and come to a company like ours? How did you get the opportunity to come over here? I think, you know, part of it was my, my old company got bigger. We were acquired, and uh, I think some of the systems and structure I, I got uncomfortable with. Um, I think there was also, it was just a good time for a change. Um, I, I think I was maybe finding a bit too much routine in my job. And I was really tired. I was I was a global resource, and so you know I'm an early riser. I'd get to the office at six or six thirty. Europe, it's lunchtime. They're trying to get as much information out of you before they go home. Um, then 
you know, you get a few hours in the middle of the day, and then by the evening, Russia and Australia are are asking, you know, can we do a conference call at 6 p.m.? Um, and it, it it got pretty exhausting. I think maybe if I would have had a bit more help, it wouldn't have been as draining. But I was just ready for for a change of scenery. I could I can imagine being that you are a global resource. People calling you all hours of the day, emailing you all hours of the day. I mean, in oil and gas, we barely have time to breathe, anyways. And that's just here in the United States or North America because we're on relatively the same time zone. So, you know, folks out there, can you imagine going, you know, leaving work and thinking you got the night off, but you're spent dealing with high stressful environments and people demanding answers? I mean, I don't think most people understand how actually stressful and draining that could be. And because, and especially in oil and gas, we don't stop drilling on Christmas, folks. Like we are drilling 365 days a year. So imagine yourself for 365 days straight, even if you're not at work or at your office, your phone is attached to your hip. You're constantly getting emails. It's amazing that, you know, what, how much workload a certain person can endure before someone, you know, eventually just says, hey, you know what? It's time for a change. So, you know, I, I really don't blame you for, for looking for a little bit of an outlet there. Yeah, it was, you know, it was really fortunate. Uh, you know, part of my story with joining AES is uh, I tell everybody, you know, be nice to everyone because someday they may present you with an opportunity. Um, and granted, James, our vice president, is a great guy and an easy guy to get along with. But he called me up out of the blue. We'd worked together years ago, um, both at the same previous employer um, and it, it, part of a project when I was living in Azerbaijan, he came over as, as an expert and helped out. And James said, Hey man, I've been thinking about you. Just wondering, you know, what you're up to. And if you consider making a move. Um, and I was trying to explain to James all the reasons that I really didn't think I was a good fit for what AES did. And he said, look, I, you know, I think, I think, uh, I'd like to just have lunch with you. Um, and actually, probably the most powerful thing he told me is he said, look, your reputation in Azerbaijan when you were there was that you arrived there and you didn't know anything. Um, but you learned, you taught yourself a lot, you did a lot of research, and you found your way, and you were able to take care of your customers. I don't want to hire you for what you know right now. I want to hire you for what I think you're capable of. And just kind of that vote of confidence has lingered in where it was kind of like, okay, this guy really believes in me. Wow, that's um, powerful. Oh, I mean, it's been huge, and and I think it just built all this momentum where I got to meet uh, a few other folks, other people I'd met along the way in my career who'd come over here and had great things to say about it. Uh, and so um, it, it didn't take long for me to want to be a part of AES once I learned about it. Very cool. So give folks an understanding what your role is currently here at AES. Well, I jokingly say it's whatever my boss tells me to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my title is technology and marketing manager. And really what that means is technology and marketing. So, you know, with a smaller company, one thing I'm really passionate about is, is branding, that the, the quality of the service we provide is kind of reflected in how you see our paperwork, our brochures, that kind of, you know, even down to that detail is something I'm passionate about. And then, you know, the technical side of me loves getting in front of customers and solving problems and developing new products uh, and working with some of the other folks to say, okay, what's, what's the next big thing we should be researching? Uh, so it's, it's kind of a combination of both of those along with whatever else comes up along the day, you know, along the way. 
And I understand you're also a movie director. And by that, I mean, if you want to know a little bit about what Matt's capable of, and our story here at CES, he built a beautiful video that you can go on YouTube or even my LinkedIn profile, Justin Gauthier, and uh, take a look. It's pretty, you did some fascinating work, Matt. I have to brag for you a little bit. Well, shucks. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things that I think even CES, our parent company, has has a really interesting story that I, I wish we could tell better. Um, and and my effort, my first contribution was putting together this video. Uh, but I've learned a lot. There are, there are several YouTube videos from my college days that weren't as professional, but I've had some time to refine the craft. Uh, so on the side, I, I love just educating people on what a great company I think we work for. I love it. And we'll set a link up in the show notes for you to take a look. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.